Coming up on This Week in Games, Google and Warner Brothers heads downplay a subscription model, Microsoft Access one of its rumored consoles, and Nexon is no longer for sale. Wait, what? Coming up This Week in Games. It's that time of the week for your video game industry news rundown. I'm your host, Eric McConnell, and we had an important week this week. Not an earth-shattering news week or some kind of giant flashy conference with a bunch of announcements, but really a week of clarification and news that kind of explains the state of the industry. Kicking it off, Google clarifies the confusing nuance of purchasing a $60 cloud gaming game. So Phil Harrison clarifies the issue of ownership, which was kind of a big question when the upcoming cloud gaming platform announced that games would be sold for $60. It kind of like blew everyone's mind. Who owns the game you purchase if you don't have a physical copy or don't download the game to your hard drive? What happens if the publisher pulls their game off of Stadia and Google fails and renegotiate for that game to be back on Stadia? What happens if Google kind of like loses the right to sell that game, you know, or if like the company selling it gets bought by a rival platform? You know, Phil Harrison answered all those questions. VP of Stadia stated that if a game was purchased and later removed from sell, that game would still be accessible and playable on Stadia. Likely Google knows not to have, that not having this grandfathered support of sold games would easily destroy their platform and got that in the contracts for every game sold. However, I'll also add that this exact issue is probably what caused a number of publisher and IP holders not to release games on Stadia. Requiring developers or publishers to permanently support kind of like a games as a service is a scary proposition for a fraction of the $60 price tag. Think about it. You release a game on Stadia, um, you know, the game has bugs, maybe the platform, you're not very used to having this like game being distributed in this way you pull the game or your company gets bought out by Microsoft, that game is no longer available on Stadia because obviously Microsoft doesn't want it on there. But you still have to support the game for many years in a way that like technically upgrade it with whenever Stadia upgrades its back in technology. So it, it's not a great proposition. Um, and it's pretty understandable. I don't know. We'll have to see kind of how this goes because I really think most people, and I'll get to this in my next story, thought subscription services was the way Google was going to go, and it wasn't. I should also note I'm employed by Google and have zero inside knowledge on the working of Stadia, and I work in an entirely different org under Alphabet, so all these views basically just represent me making up stuff and not actual facts I've obtained from work or any insight I have from working at Google. Next story, Warner Brothers Interactive head David Haddad and Stadia head Phil Harrison says subscription is not going to replace tra traditional direct-to-consumer sales. So this is an interesting story, and I'll break down both of these. First, let's go with Warner Brothers Interactive head. Haddad spoke to VentureBeat, and he said, quote, I don't think that we've proven that a transactional business, as we call it, where you pay a premium price for an experience where gamers have 30, 40, 100 hours of play, they'll pay a premium price for that. That's great for us. We have a long history of transactional businesses. Um, I don't know. He goes on and basically says, like, subscriptions haven't been proven out because people play three games a, a year, and they kind of just put, like, 100 hours in those games. 
Honestly, my opinion <laughs> on this, is, you kind of have to ignore what he says. My opinion, Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment makes most of their money is off microtransactions. The reason subscription doesn't make sense for them is because it lowers the pressure that microtransactions, the pressure of microtransacting on the players. So if we look at the App Store as an example, there are plenty of player choice, but microtransaction is still reigned king, and that's because App Store is free. And free isn't always a good thing. Because it's free, and because all the games are free, they all make their money from microtransaction, because the other options, probably like data and advertising, and you know that commodity isn't valuable enough for a single player. So they all have to make their money off that 1% to 2% of wells through microtransactions. Now, what's different is if you have a subscription service, that player is paying for value. And so they expect to get some sort of value of the, out of the subscription service. So if you pay $10 a month, you expect to get $10 a month at least in entertainment or else you wouldn't do that and begin with. So the company has to put $10 perceived value of entertainment on a premium subscription service. Now, if one game, if we look at their like a subscription service, right? And it had microtransactions. One game had microtransactions, and theoretically there's another game that didn't, and they both filled the same void. Clearly the game without microtransactions that can be played to its fullest by just paying the subscription fee will likely be played over the game with microtransactions. So, you know, you can kind of see why Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment doesn't really want to support subscription models at this point. And it would probably take a big cut their revenue until they figured out how to retool their development studios around this new monetization paradigm. But let's go on to Phil Harrison. He spoke to your gamer quote, the industry is in a transition. Not every developer and publisher is ready to move subscription yet. Harrison tells Eurogamer, frankly, not every gamer is ready to move to the subscription yet. So we wanted to give gamers a choice so they can engage in the games they wanted the way they want it. And in all cases, without a very high upfront cost of buying a sophisticated device to put on their TV, so on and so on. Um, <laughs> okay. So I think Uplay is the only third-party subscription service available on Google Stadia. So that's Ubisoft. But Uplay, if I recall correctly from the E3 episode, doesn't guarantee you day one of all of Ubisoft's titles for just subscribing to Uplay. I think it just gives you a library of games, but they never actually put took the stance that every single Ubisoft title day one would be for free to Uplay subscribers. That's the only subscription model on Stadia. The rest are all, you know, premium purchases. I think Phil Harrison has to take the stance because Google doesn't have an army of IP under its wings. And if E3 taught us anything, publishers are testing the water with subscription services of their own. And they've kind of looked to see how Disney, NBC, and other content companies, you know, first sold their content in Netflix when Netflix was still up and coming, and now are trying desperately to pull their content back so they can manage their own subscription service because their content is their value. Game publishers are not looking to jump in bed with a platform holder and hand over all of their value, which is their own IP and games. The value exchange isn't great because, think about it, it destroys the perceived value of a publisher's game if they um, are offered an affordable subscription on one platform to play the game. So your player, you see Google stated you could pay $10 a month extra and get a library of games. And one of those games is New Shiny Action Game 3. And then on another platform, New Shiny game, Action Game 3 costs $60. <laughs> like people are either going to subscribe to Stadia or not subscribe to Stadia. 
And if they don't subscribe to Stadia, they're going to look at it costing $60 on this other platform and be like, well, what the hell? It, it's this extra subscription on Stadia to get the game is only $10. I'm not going to buy it on that platform either. And likely the game developer is going to lose out on both fronts. Um, yeah, Google can't lose the money that... And this is, I mean, I'm just making this up. I have no inside knowledge. Google can't lose the money that offering, like the amount of money they have to offer Ubisoft, EA, Activision, Blizzard, and so on to build this diverse portfolio of games that would really make a subscription service make sense would then in turn require them to charge an absorbent amount of money for the subscription service on top of the $10 a month pro plan for Stadia. So looking at Microsoft Game Pass, Microsoft owns these studios and they own a wide kind of swath of IP. So it's much easier for them to do this with their Game Pass than it is for Google. And kind of like Phil Harrison has to defend this direct purchase model still. And I'm not saying he doesn't believe it in himself. All right, next up, another kind of interesting story. Microsoft Scrap plans to show multiple consoles under the Project Scarlet umbrella at E3. So if you remember many, many months back, I was covering E3 Microsoft rumors, and I mentioned that multiple consoles under Scar, um, potential multiple consoles under the Scarlet Umbrella, or another mysterious console under the codename Lockhart. Now, Paul Thrott, who's like, I don't know, he's always on This Week in Tech. Um, he's kind of like, I think he runs like This Week in Microsoft under the Twit Network. He's kind of like a big Microsoft insider. He reports after talking to various insiders, he has some answers. A, developers didn't want to develop over multiple console infrastructures for next gen, especially coming from the same console developer. Like why would Microsoft offer two infrastructures that you have to develop for? Remember when Sony had their cell processor and Microsoft Xbox 360 was, I think it was on x86. And like, I swear to God, developers actually didn't want to develop for PlayStation 3 solely because of the cell processor architecture, which is why next console generation, both consoles had similarly aligned x86 architectures. That makes sense. Also, the other note, developers wanted to focus on scaled up games and not supporting a gradient of quality that the two consoles would have probably provided. So that also makes sense. You're selling a new console. You want to say this is next gen. Why have next-gen that's like super high and next-gen that's only slightly better than what's already provided? It all seems reasonable. Um, I think if people knew, they'd be surprised that even within console makers, sometimes there are multiple consoles being developed at once, and then only one gets released as like PlayStation 4. You know, I would even say, especially with controllers, there's like an army of like images online of like, scrapped controller <laughs> scrap controller prototypes and stuff some of them are absolutely batshit crazy i recommend you go research this yourself after this podcast but there's been like giant boomerang type controllers there's there's all types of stuff so you know this isn't uncommon um i think just the rumors and the leaks made it more official than it probably was all right, next up, Twitch offers a new feature, subscriber-only stream. So I think this is a strange move. Twitch now allows streamers to have subscriber-only streams, meaning that viewers must pay the monthly subscription to a particular streamer to watch the subscriber-only stream. So if you're Ninja, it's $5 a month to subscribe to Ninja. He does a stream only for subscribers. So only people who pay that $5 a month to him can watch this stream. That would be the example. 
Now, I say this is a strange move because it doesn't exactly help the streamer. In my opinion, the unit economics of streaming favor quantity over quality. If you think about it, like ranking is king. Ranking is almost exclusively either done by deals with Twitch, but basically done by views. And ad revenue and then your potential addressable market is also like done by views. So cutting potential new viewers to premium streaming content doesn't make sense. And I can't think of a streamer that has kind of like the clout or power to set streams to subscriber only and have that succeed. Having subscribers only streams puts you in the lowers in the rankings. And again, from what I can tell, viewer rankings are the only thing that matters on who wins and who loses on Twitch. But that being said, it'll be interesting to see if anyone figures out like a new way to utilize this feature. I'm predicting probably not used often, but if for anything, maybe like a special Q&A for streamers that have like a real like personality that people really want to connect with, maybe like subscriber only streams where you can talk to them and send them questions. I don't know. Again, I, I, I just can't see this working because it goes against everything you want on Twitch, which is more viewers. But that's me. We'll see what happens. So some more news, some smaller stories. Microsoft cut staff on both Inside Xbox and Mixer. This is actually funny because it follows up the Twitch story. Inside Microsoft is Microsoft's first-party streaming content team, and Mixer is Microsoft's own streaming platform similar to Twitch. Honestly, the move makes sense because I forgot both of these existed until this story. So, <laughs> you know, probably should give up on Mixer as being a thing, I guess, Microsoft. <laughs> All right. Another interesting story, kind of weird. South Korea creates a law against account boosting. Now, for those of you who don't know, account boosting in its simplest form is when a player hires another player to grind levels, items, or achievements in a game. So the easiest example is you have a League of Legends account. You hire a pro player to play your League of Legends account on ranked mode and reach platinum level and ranked. You know. Now, <laughs> this is an actual law that prohibits this. The new South Korean law would make boosting punishable by fines up to 18,000 and a two-year suspended prison sentence. What the hell? I can see where South Korea's priorities are at, and it's almost laughable to think this could or would ever happen in America. I mean, the Senate would be confused as hell to try to figure out what a video game account is and why someone would want to play someone else's account. Like, this wouldn't even make it. This this probably couldn't even be written in paper because people would be so confused in Washington as to what the hell account boosting was. All right, another story. Sledgehammer Games co-founder Glenn Schofield to head new PUBG Corp studio striking distance. So, it's a pretty big hire for PUBG Corp. Glenn Schofield was the co-founder of one of the major Activision studios and developer on the Rotation Call of Duty schedule. So the Rotation Call of Duty schedule is Treyarch, Sledgehammer, uh, and Infinity Ward. I forgot who owns who. Like Call of Duty Blacks made by one, and then Call of Duty something else made by the other. And they all trade off which one of them releases the game every year. Um, striking Distance, the new PUBG Corp studio, is said to create narrative-driven experiences in the PUBG universe. I didn't know the PUBG had a universe. I just assumed the PUBG universe was default art assets from UE4. Bam, zinger. Sorry. <laughs> that was me taking a jab at them. All right, let's get to some business news. This, this story sucks. Nexon is no longer up for sale. I hate you, Nexon. Like, you teased me for months, and now you come to this. So the company propped up by two ancient games is no longer for sale. The Korea Economic Daily has reported that CEO Kim Jong-ju is no longer selling his 
98% stake in the South Korea's largest publisher due to lack of buyers and low bids from serious buyers. So Bain Capital and Cacao Games, Netmarble and Tencent, and recently Disney have all either dropped out of the auction or have had their bids rejected by Jungju. I've covered this story since January. Frankly, I'm disappointed. I don't get the big payoff, you know? I don't get to see, like, who publicly outbid at someone else and see who gets next on sold to to form some, like, giant publisher conglomerate. So, unfortunately, MapleStory and Dungeon Fighter Online will continue to print money for founder Jungju in the near future, and Nexon will stay put, it seems like. All right, mobile publisher Tilting Point has partnered with Cook Apps to the tune of $20 million. The New York-based publisher Tilting Point, kind of known mostly for Star Trek timelines, is dedicating $20 million for user acquisition of Cook Apps' Match 3 title Toy Party. Now, this itself not the biggest story, but this is a commentary that I want to address on like where mobile game publishing is. Mobile publishers have moved on from the trend of funding development and getting a cut of revenue to funding UA and getting a cut in revenue. And that's because most developers don't have the in-house team to kind of A-B test and optimize through data UA, and they also don't have the war chest of money to fund UA. So this is kind of the value exchange in modern mobile development. Toy Party likely costs us a very small fraction of the $20 million to make, but in the current mobile landscape, UA is sadly more important than game quality, developer costs, or anything else. UA is pretty much it in mobile gaming. Publishers can offer the most developers by taking control of UA and min-maxing it for the developer. You know, getting a war chest for UA is worth the revenue sharing because you wouldn't even have a seat at the table or you wouldn't even get up to to the plate to take a swing if you don't have X million dollars for UA in mobile gaming. Like it's actually really rare for mobile games to succeed on merit alone than for succeeding on, you know, purely UA min-maxing. All right, finally, the other interesting business news of the week, Japanese mobile developer Gummy was in the news twice. Now, I don't really cover them that much because, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a weird week that they were in the news twice. So, Known for mobile RPGs, particularly Final Fantasy Brave Exvius, and I don't know what the what Exvius means. I feel like it's just Japanese people trolling English at this point. Um, Gumi has acquired 1.7 million dollars in shares in Double Jump, and Double Jump is a dev studio focused on crypto games, particularly Crypto Heroes, which is a pretty popular crypto game. This brings their total ownership of the studio to over 67%, meaning they basically own the studio as long as voting shares and voting control is evenly spread among, you know, publicly purchasable shares. Gumi also has laid off 32 employees and closes their Gumi Europe and France studio. So Gumi EU worked on the game Brave Frontier the last summoner, which was released in 2018 to disappointing sales, so they had to shut down the studio. Now, I'm not saying either of these stories are particularly related. I'm just surprised that this nostalgia-focused RPG publisher kind of like had the spread and war chest that they did. And I mean, it kind of uh, shows you in the Asian mobile market, like there's just an army of people making these kind of nostalgic SNES uh, RPG games. And they're still doing great with gotcha mechanics and, uh, you know, simple time-based, turn-based combat where, you know, where like one side on the left are all the goblins and the 
side on the right is your RPG unit. And then you throw a gotcha machine on the top of that, throw a light storyline, throw some progression, bada bing, bada boom, uh, you're printing money. So interesting to see. Uh, we'll see if Gumi breaks out of uh, Japan and heads over to America soon. All right, that's it for this week in games. I'm Merritt McConnell. Join me next week and we'll do it all over again. Take care.